Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 170, Bonanza, Part 1. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. You can visit Knitting Out Loud at knittingoutloud.com. Also, Knit Circus, the online magazine featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. Please visit knitcircus.com. The summer issue is up and awaiting your eyes. And Holiday Travel and Craftlet take you to London, Bath, and Wales this fall, 2010. We will be there with Amy Singer, me, that would be Heather, Brenda Dane, Tanya, Marie Irshad, and Mr. Darcy, who will disrobe. Not entirely. It's not, you know, dirty or anything like that. No, it's a lot of good, clean fun with a bunch of really interesting bookish people. I am so excited. Oh, there's just, there's so, okay. Here's the thing. I promised you when I did back-to-back 168, 169, I promised you that for 170, I was going to have this major announcement for you. And it's not going to happen. Too, too many wonderful things are all kind of blurbling all at once. And we're just going to have to wait for the start of the new book. Instead... Since I have to, since I'm tempting you with hidden information, I thought it was only fair that I go ahead and finish the bloody book. So today, which is Wednesday afternoon, I am recording two more back-to-back podcasts, 170 and 171. And I'm gonna put them on and then I'm gonna take a couple of weeks because I really need to have some dedicated time to write some very important emails and business plans and all this kind of thing and prepare for Connecticut Yankee. Now, I know that some of you wrote me early on in the podcast, like four years ago, and said, if you play Twain, I will stop listening. And I hope you're still here. (laughs) And I hope that by now you trust me that I really wouldn't play something for you that was going to stink. So, so stick around, because it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. And before I go any further, um, Northanger Abbey, not Mansfield Park. For all of you who are sitting there, you know, feeling as though my fingernails just went down the chalkboard, the book I was talking about before that takes place in Bath is Northanger Abbey not Mansfield Park. So huge apologies. This is what happens when you listen to too many audiobooks. They all start to blur together. I have a sneaking suspicion you know what I'm talking about. So uh, huge apologies for that. Um, A couple of little announcements. One, this is ridiculous. My sons and I, I think I actually mentioned this before, half of this. My sons and I over this summer, since we don't really have we're not sending them to, you know, day camp or anything like that. It's pretty much just playing at home and hanging out with the rents and all. Uh, we are going to build a chicken coop. And I have a, a good friend here, Linda, who is a knitter who has many chickens. In fact, one of her chickens is 
18 years old, not to put too fine a point on it. She knows how to actually take care of chickens instead of just growing and eating. She, she is an egg person and she lets them die of old age and she's kind of cool. I like her a lot. So we're going down to visit her coop tomorrow and see how it's been constructed and what kinds of uh, helpful hints she can give us. And then we are going to start plotting out our coopish area. And I already pretty much know where it's going to be because we wanted part of it to be under a tree because unlike other parts of the country, really seriously, truly, if there isn't some shade, these poor animals are just going to not make it. They will die of heat prostration in the summer. Um, and while it is warm, it's definitely in the 90s now, it's June 2nd, and uh, and we've, we've easily hit the, the mid-90s in a couple of days. I think we hit 100 in my black car. Don't ask. We, uh, we are only going to get hotter and potentially drier, which is kind of scary. But be that as it may, the wee little chickens need to have some help, you know? So we have a large Palo Verde tree. And for those of you who haven't been to Arizona before, Palo means stick or twig and Verde means green. In Spanish. And it is true, this entire tree is kind of this pale, dusty green color. The the bark, the trunk, the leaves, because there are leaves, they're tiny, uh, and 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 the the branches. It's all this kind of light green color. Kind of like um oh I don't know, uh the color of Canada Dry, the diet. Canada Dry green, not the dark bright green that you get with regular Canada Dry. Can you tell I'm looking at one of the cans right now? But the more pale, my avocado green. Let's go with that. So it's a beautiful tree. They grow fast here because they are a native plant and they are used to it. And they grow big and we have a big one. And, uh, and so we're going to put the coop under that and two of the walls of the chicken coop will be um, the backside of the old pool fence because we we moved into a house that has a pool and because what else does one do when it's 114 out except submerge yourself so we we're going to you know use part of the existing architecture and then we have some leftover horse fronts from when we fenced in the house. But this was our big brainstorm when we had, uh, my in-laws were here over Memorial Day weekend, and we always have a really good time. And my mother-in-law, who is an engineer, and I were talking, and all of a sudden it dawned on me, there has to be a sustainable way to build a chicken coop, or at least a chicken coop structure. And so we started talking about, you know, well, what is it that one could use to build a semi-permanent structure? And the answer is plastic bottles. These are things, we, we were watching the movie Oceans, Disney had, or Ocean, Ocean? Oceans. Anyway, Disney put out a movie for Earth Day this year, 2010, called Oceans. And uh, I was reading something else about the ocean, about how in the middle of the Pacific, there is a blob of plastic bottles and other detritus that is larger than the state of Texas. And because of the way the tides work, there is just this ginormous mass of trash in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And some of this is from cruise lines because I don't know if you know this or not, but most of them, I think all of them, but at least most of them dump their trash in the middle of the ocean. And, you know, that's bad. 
we like to think that it is so big that it, it can't be affected, but uh, of course it can be. Um, and the, the movie Oceans does a beautiful job with the animals. Oh my gosh. I felt like, you know how, for those of us of a certain age, when we suddenly learned that there was no such thing as a brontosaur, <laughs> it surprised us. What do you mean? What do you mean there's no brontosaur? Of course there's a brontosaur. You showed me pictures of it when I was a small child. It's kind of that same thing. I felt like I was seeing animals that didn't exist when I was in school. I had no idea about all this stuff. And of course, it's just because the diving technology is better and they can go deeper and they've learned more. And we still know more about space than we do about the oceans. But be that as it may, it all comes back to giant blob oplastic in the Pacific. And I said something to the effect of, golly, if someone could go out there with a boat and a net and capture all that stuff, they could melt it down and recycle it and they would be very rich because they'd be able to sell that recycled plastic to whatever company they want. And my mother-in-law said, well, you know, actually, recycling plastic like that requires an awful lot of chemicals and those chemicals are just as deadly as the chemicals that it takes to manufacture PET plastic in the first place. And that made me very sad. And then I th said, well, you know, what if you just repurpose the bottles instead of trying to melt them down? And so we came home and we did a little research and it turns out that in Central America and Latin America, plenty of people and, and the Caribbean islands, plenty of people have been repurposing plastic bottles and turning them into bricks. Think about this for a second. Run with me here. Fill the bottle with, well, heck, anything solid and stable. You could even fill it with water if water is a renewable resource where you live, but sand, dirt, um, mud, yeah, other trash, anything, anything to create an insulated material out of that bottle. Just air in Arizona isn't enough because the sun would heat up the air. Um, so think of it kind of like an adobe brick in a tube. And then you take those bottles and you uh, put down mortar and you lay those bottles next to each other and then you put a strip of mortar across the top of those bottles and then you do the kind of like weaving, you know, if you had bottle space, bottle space, bottle space, now you'd go space, bottle space, bottle space, bottle, you know what I mean. You lay them down like Lego, like Lego bricks. And then more mortar, and then the next layer, and then more mortar, and then the next layer. And as long as each layer is using basically the same size bottle, you can build a wall, a fairly stable wall. And if you really wanted to go nutty about the whole thing, you could... I don't know, drill the bottles and um, instead of filling them with uh, mud or whatever, if you, if you lived in a place that was a little more temperate than Arizona, you could just slide the bottles down the rebar in horizontal rows. So, you know, you do one bottom row and then with the next either or group of rebar, you would slide the next set of bottles down having pre-drilled them and all. We are going to go the easy way. We are not going to do rebar. We are not going to drill anything. We are going to fill stuff with dirt. And we are going to use, we have a bunch of leftover cement from I don't know what. And we are going to build ourselves a chicken coop very slowly over a long period of time. So I am going to be uploading pictures of this because if this sucker works, boy, is that going to revolutionize my whole way of thinking about building materials. Adobe, for those of you who haven't been to the Southwest, Adobe is mud bricks. 
um, usually mixed, you know, mud mixed with straw. It's, you know, we think of it, we modern people who can't seem to stop polluting things, we think of it as primitive architecture. For those people in Arizona who are lucky enough to live in an original adobe house from the 20s or 30s here in Arizona, or at least in Tucson, those people know that they don't really need air conditioning like the rest of us do because their houses are so well built and so well insulated and so appropriate for this climate. I mean, yes, you do need air conditioning when it gets humid and hot, but for the most part, you can, you can do with a breeze because the air in your home is just, darn it, cooler than everywhere else. So Adobe here works really well. Insulation is obviously a part of it. I'm yammering. Anyway, the long and short of it is this. If you are someone who prefers to drink water or soda or water or soda out of plastic bottles, the PET bottles, the Dasani bottles, the uh, Aquafina bottles, the... Diet Dr. Pepper bottles, whatever. If you are a bottle drinker and you feel like, hmm, perhaps sticking these in my recycling bin isn't the best option. Maybe I should just, oh, I don't know, send them to Heather. <laughs> feel free. Email me if you have a bunch or if you have a box full or whatever. Just try not to compress them because we have to, we have to fill them with sand. And uh, it would be a very light box to ship. Email me and let me know. And, um, and anybody who does send a box, I'm putting you into the incentive drawing for whatever incentive I have. And I'll just keep you posted so that you can kind of live vicariously through my sons and me as we build, as we build a chicken coop. And we figured that we're going to do um, most of the layers at the bottom filled with sand. And then we're going to do some areas just clear plastic so that there's some light coming in to the chicken coop. And then we'll put a sloped roof on the top. And of course, the bottles won't all match. It won't be a perfect diagonal of bottles. But that's good because you want ventilation at the top. See? So the only non-sustainable things that we should be using... And of course, I'm using sustainable in quotation marks because plastic bottles technically aren't sustainable, but plastic bottles aren't, all, aren't going away. <laughs> it's not like people are going to stop using them. So it's kind of sustainability in that repurposing mode. Um, we're we're going to have to buy four by four posts to attach the horse fence to, and we're going to have to buy a sheet of plywood um, to put on the roof for the birds, and then some tar paper, I think, over the top. And... Um, Maybe we'll find a genius way to repurpose the plastic and create shingles out of them or something for kind of like a, a Spanish Spanish roof. I'll think of something. Ooh, I've already thought of something. Ha! I'll take pictures of it. So that's, that's all the crafty news on my end. Because if teaching two writing summer school courses isn't enough, I'm going to build a chicken coop. And of course, at the same time, continue to knit and crochet. I am working on three more patterns for an upcoming book. I'll find out if I can tell you more information about these books. I'm very excited um, about those and oh, just all sorts of stuff. All that information will come to you in episode 173, which will be the beginning of Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. And while I'm on hiatus, I think Brenda's back. I think I saw a new cast on episode. So you have stuff to keep you going, right? I think you do. So, without yammering in your ear any further, we have 
chapter 22, which is a, a rather long one, of Persuasion. Now, as you may recall, and I know it's been a little over a, a week, so for those of you who are listening in real time, the last episode was our Mr. Wickham moment. This is when we learned that Mr. Elliot, the younger, not Sir Walter, but, but young Mr. Elliot, who has been actively courting Anne, is perhaps not as wonderful as he has made us all think. And of course, there was always something a little suspicious about him. He's, he was a little too perfect. It's kind of nice, I think, that in Jane Austen's books, the people who we are supposed to be reading for are not perfect. Anne is not perfect. She has her moments where she gets a little snooty. And Elizabeth Bennet certainly has her issues with pride. And, you know, Mr. Darcy is kind of a cold fish and hard to get to know, but Pemberley gave us that kind of visual metaphor for who he is. And and here we have uh, Captain Wentworth, who you can imagine, I mean, being told, I'm sorry, honey, I have to dump you because you're not classy enough for my family. That's got to hurt, right? I mean, he's he's obviously, he has his pride. If he didn't, he would have come you know, falling back at Anne's feet, begging her to, to take him back. And of course, he didn't do that. So he's he's a, a good he's a good stand up fellow, but of course he has his, his pride too. And um, and and I guess I guess where I'm going with this is I like Jane Austen because her people are complicated; they are not easy. And of course, you know, people in real life are like that too. So it's kind of I. It's one of the things I am attracted to. However, I did find the quote that I promised you I would find. We have uh, from Violin Knitter on Ravelry. This is Gabrielle. She, <laughs> she picked out of um, an article by Michelle Kearns. She's, uh, she's a blogger. And she listed 50 of the best author versus author put downs. And the one that came from 1898 from Mark Twain goes like this. I haven't any right to criticize books, and I don't do it except when I hate them. I often want to criticize Jane Austen, but her books madden me so that I can't conceal my frenzy from the reader, and therefore, I have to stop every time I begin. Every time I read Pride and Prejudice, I want to dig her up and hit her over the skull with her own shin bone. <laughs> I so disagree with him, but it's just... The man has a way with words. He can craft a picturesque insult. No? Poor Jane. <laughs> anyway. Um, so we had our Wickham moment last week. And it was Miss Smith to the rescue. Mrs. Smith to the rescue. The, the widow, Mrs. Smith. And of course, one of the great ironic moments here is that um, Austin... Austin... Uh, gives us this wonderful, um, absurd vision of Sir Walter and, and Elizabeth. And so, you know, on the one hand, she's kind of pointing the finger at that level of society, that, that aristocratic, that the aristocracy in general, and that aristocratic echelon in specific. Um, because he's, you know, he's, not, it's not like he's 
it's not like he's the king, but Sir Walter kind of acts like it. And so she's, she's definitely poking fun at people like that. At the same time, she is very clearly upholding social rules that say that the kind of, I don't know, social climbing that young Mr. Elliot is doing is absolutely improper and, and, and wrong. And, and so she's, she's put Anne in a, a very delicately woven position where, especially for a woman, it was important for Anne to choose the man she was going to marry wisely, considering all of the ramifications of that decision at that time. And while um, Anne thinks it's a, a bit embarrassing, it's socially acceptable to, um, if, if it's, mm, I'm thinking of the Dalrymple connection, that uh, it's perfectly within the bounds of social niceties for Sir Walter and his family to um, reconnect with Lady Dalrymple. They are, after all, related if distantly and and so that's that's fine if a little humiliating which is kind of the part that Anne has has issues with but but Mr. Elliot young Mr. Elliot crosses a number of lines and she's very clear on that I I think the biggest one um and actually if you saw the movie version of Persuasion the one with Kieran Hines as uh Captain Wentworth one of the things you saw was as Elizabeth left Kellynch Hall she turns to Anne and makes some comment about how Anne really needs to go visit everybody in the village because it's the right thing to do. And of course, as the landed gentry of that area, you would be expected to kind of keep an eye out for your peeps as it was. We saw the same thing happening on a, um, I don't want to say much more poverty-stricken level, but it is kind of a poverty-stricken level, in Little Women, where even though Marmee and her girls were not in any way, shape, or form doing well by larger society standards, they had food. And there were people in their town at the time who didn't. And so they were paying sick calls and trying to help people out who were struggling. And, of course, that's how... Um, we lost poor Beth. And, um, and so that, that kind of, you know, it's almost the noblesse oblige. You know, if you have it, you are obligated to um, help others who don't kind of thing, which we, you know, by all living in cars and spread out and far away from each other, it's, it's very easy to forget that we're all a, a tapestry of, of people and that we, we, need, we need to care for other people, not just our nuclear family or our extended family but um you know we rise and fall with each other and when we fall we can fall pretty hard and Anne seems to have a very clear picture of this and one of the things that truly condemns young Mr. Elliot is his treatment of Mrs. Smith she is a widow her husband didn't leave her as executor I suppose he couldn't um and M Mr. Elliot should have been thinking only of her at that point, and wasn't, and didn't, and never did. And, and poor Mrs. Smith is still 
you know, reeling from the damage that he did. So it's, um, it's not just that he was tactless and tasteless in talking about how he didn't want the title and Sir Walter was a dope and all of that stuff. It was really the line the, in Anne's world, the line that really was crossed was the Mrs. Smith line. And I don't think that that's a redeemable fault at least not Nan's book, um, you would have to work awfully hard to come back from that. And remember, you know, the, the corollary to this, looking back at Pride and Prejudice, was Mr. Darcy, that when Elizabeth's sister was compromised, it was Mr. Darcy who went and paid for and arranged a way to save her virtue and her, her name and her family's name. And of course, there's some selfish motive in it, I'm sure, because he had his eye on Elizabeth and he didn't want to have a dopey sister ruin his chances but at the same time he did the right thing even though you know he was kind of putting himself out there if other people had seen what he was doing he might have been called into question so so on on every level mr elliot has failed uh, massively and anne is uh, lucky that she avoided his his grasp um so today, in chapter 22, you are going to see Mr. Elliot coming in, and you are going to see Anne's reaction to him. And you're also going to see a little covert action on the part of Mr. Elliot. You'll be able to start to put the pieces together for yourself and see what you think is going on. All of your answers will be provided for you in episode 171. Um, there's, there's also uh, an interesting moment with, with Captain Wentworth. Uh, he's, he's here, he's present in this chapter, but he's a little bit in the background. And it's, it's interesting because, again, if you've seen the version of, of the movie that, that uh, Kieran Hines is in, I found, strangely, this part of the movie to move too quickly for me. The book moves quickly here, but it was... It almost, I almost didn't have a chance to savor these last few chapters. And, um, and one of the nice things about the Austin books is that when you do get to this, this moment of kind of critical mass where things have, have started rolling downhill, you know, all the chess pieces are in place. We've moved everything to the top of the mountain. And once they start rolling, <laughs> to mix metaphors mercilessly, once the chess pieces start rolling down the mountain, there's really no stopping them. And, um, and, and even so, even though it moves quickly, it doesn't move as quickly as the movie. And it's, it's a little easier to kind of relish the moments that we have as we build towards our final, our final scenes in Persuasion. So, I am going to play you Chapter 22 of Persuasion by Jane Austen. Anne went home to think over all that she had heard. In one point her feelings were relieved by this knowledge of Mr. Elliot. There was no longer anything of tenderness due to him. He stood as opposed to Captain Wentworth in all his own unwelcome obtrusiveness. And the evil of his attentions last night, the irremediable mischief he might have done, was considered with sensations unqualified, unperplexed. Pity for him was all over. But this was the only point of relief. In every other respect, in looking around her or penetrating forward, she saw more to distrust and to apprehend. She was concerned for the disappointment and pain Lady Russell would be feeling, 
for the mortifications which must be hanging over her father and sister, and had all the distress of foreseeing many evils without knowing how to avert any one of them. She was most thankful for her own knowledge of him. She had never considered herself as entitled to reward for not slighting an old friend like Mrs. Smith, but here was a reward indeed springing from it. Mrs. Smith had been able to tell her what no one else could have done. Could the knowledge have been extended through her family? But this was a vain idea. She must talk to Lady Russell, tell her, consult with her, and having done her best, wait the event with as much composure as possible. And after all, her greatest want of composure would be in that quarter of the mind which could not be open to Lady Russell, in that flow of anxieties and fears which must be all to herself. She found, on reaching home, that she had, as she intended, escaped seeing Mr. Elliot, that he had called and paid them a long morning visit, but hardly had she congratulated herself and felt safe when she heard that he was coming again in the evening. "'I had not the smallest intention of asking him,' said Elizabeth, with affected carelessness, "'but he gave so many hints, so Mrs. Clay says, at least. "'Indeed I do say it. "'I never saw anybody in my life spell harder for an invitation. "'Poor man! "'I was really in pain for him, "'for your hard-hearted sister, Miss Anne, seems bent on cruelty.' "'Oh!' cried Elizabeth. "'I have been rather too much used to the game "'to be soon overcome by a gentleman's hints.' However, when I found how excessively he was regretting that he should miss my father this morning, I gave way immediately, for I would never really omit an opportunity of bringing him and Sir Walter together. They appear to so much advantage in company with each other, each behaving so pleasantly, Mr. Elliot looking up with so much respect. "'Quite delightful!' cried Mrs. Clay, not daring, however, to turn her eyes towards Anne. "'Exactly like father and son. Dear Miss Elliot, may I not say father and son?' "'Oh, I lay no embargo on anybody's words, if you will have such ideas. But upon my word I am scarcely sensible of his attentions being beyond those of other men.' "'My dear Miss Elliot!' exclaimed Mrs. Clay, lifting her hands and eyes, and sinking all the rest of her astonishment in a convenient silence. "'Well, my dear Penelope, you need not be so alarmed about him. I did invite him, you know. I sent him away with smiles. When I found he was really going to his friends at Thornbury Park for the whole day to-morrow, I had compassion on him. Anne admired the good acting of the friend in being able to show such pleasure as she did, in the expectation and in the actual arrival of the very person whose presence must really be interfering with her prime object. It was impossible but that Mrs. Clay must hate the sight of Mr. Elliot, and yet she could assume a most obliging, placid look, and appear quite satisfied with the curtailed license of devoting herself only half as much to Sir Walter as she would have done otherwise. To Anne herself it was most distressing to see Mr. Elliot enter the room, and quite painful to have him approach and speak to her. She had been used before to feel that he could not be always quite sincere, but now she saw insincerity in everything. His attentive deference to her father, contrasted with his former language, was odious, and when she thought of his cruel conduct towards Mrs. Smith, she could hardly bear the sight of his present smiles and mildness, or the sound of his artificial good sentiments. She meant to avoid any such alteration of manners as might provoke a remonstrance on his side. It was a great object to her to escape all inquiry or eclat, but it was her intention to be as decidedly cruel to him as might be compatible with their relationship and to retrace, as quietly as she could, the few steps of unnecessary intimacy she had been gradually led along. She was accordingly more guarded and more cool than she had been the night before. 
He wanted to animate her curiosity again as to how and where he could have heard her formally praised, wanted very much to be gratified by more solicitation, but the charm was broken. He found that the heat and animation of a public room was necessary to kindle his modest cousin's vanity. He found, at least, that it was not to be done now by any of those attempts which he could hazard among the two commanding claims of the others. He little surmised that it was a subject acting now exactly against his interest, bringing immediately to her thoughts all those parts of his conduct which were least excusable. She had some satisfaction in finding that he was really going out of Bath the next morning, going early, and that he would be gone the greater part of two days. He was invited again to Camden Place the very evening of his return, but from Thursday to Saturday evening his absence was certain. It was bad enough that a Mrs. Clay should be always before her, but that a deeper hypocrite should be added to their party seemed the destruction of everything like peace and comfort. It was so humiliating to reflect on the constant deception practised on her father and Elizabeth, to consider the various sources of mortification preparing for them. Mrs. Clay's selfishness was not so complicate nor so revolting as his, and Anne would have compounded for the marriage at once with all its evils, to be clear of Mr. Elliot's subtleties in endeavouring to prevent it. On Friday morning she meant to go very early to Lady Russell, and accomplish the necessary communication and she would have gone directly after breakfast, but that Mrs. Clay was also going out on some obliging purpose of saving her sister trouble, which determined her to wait till she might be safe from such a companion. She saw Mrs. Clay fairly off, therefore, before she began to talk of spending the morning in Rivers Street. "'Very well,' said Elizabeth. "'I have nothing to send but my love. Oh, you may as well take back that tiresome book she would lend me, and pretend I have read it through.' I really cannot be plaguing myself forever with all the new poems and states of the nation that come out. Lady Russell quite bores one with her new publications. You need not tell her so, but I thought her dress hideous the other night. I used to think she had some taste in dress, but I was ashamed of her at the concert. Something so formal and arranged in her air, and she sits so upright. My best love, of course. And mine, added Sir Walter, kindest regards. And you may say that I mean to call upon her soon. Make a civil message, but I shall only leave my card. Morning visits are never fair by women at her time of life, who make themselves up so little. If she would only wear rouge, she would not be afraid of being seen. But last time I called, I observed the blinds were let down immediately. While her father spoke, there was a knock at the door. Who could it be? Anne, remembering the preconcerted visits at all hours of Mr. Elliot, would have expected him, but for his known engagement seven miles off. After the usual period of suspense, the usual sounds of approach were heard, and Mr. and Mrs. Charles Musgrove were ushered into the room. Surprise was the strongest emotion raised by their appearance, but Anne was really glad to see them, and the others were not so sorry, but that they could put on a decent air of welcome, and as soon as it became clear that these, their nearest relations, were not arrived with any views of accommodation in that house, Sir Walter and Elizabeth were able to rise in cordiality and do the honours of it very well. They were come to Bath for a few days with Mrs. Musgrove, and were at the White Hart. So much was pretty soon understood, but till Sir Walter and Elizabeth were walking Mary into the other drawing-room, and regaling themselves with her admiration, Anne could not draw upon Charles's brain for a regular history of their coming, or an explanation of some smiling hints of particular business, which had been ostentatiously dropped by Mary, as well as of some apparent confusion as to whom their party consisted of. She then found that it consisted of Mrs. Musgrove, Henrietta, and Captain Harville, beside their two selves. 
He gave her a very plain, intelligible account of the whole, a narration in which she saw a great deal of most characteristic proceeding. The scheme had received its first impulse by Captain Harville's wanting to come to Bath on business. He had begun to talk of it a week ago, and by way of doing something, as shooting was over, Charles had proposed coming with him, and Mrs. Harville had seemed to like the idea of it very much, as an advantage to her husband. But Mary could not bear to be left, and had made herself so unhappy about it, that for a day or two everything seemed to be in suspense, or at an end. But then it had been taken up by his father and mother. His mother had some old friends in Bath whom she wanted to see. It was thought a good opportunity for Henrietta to come and buy wedding clothes for herself and her sister, and in short, it ended in being his mother's party, that everything might be comfortable and easy to Captain Harville, and he and Mary were included in it by way of general convenience. They had arrived late the night before. Mrs. Harville, her children, and Captain Benwick remained with Mr. Musgrove and Louisa at Uppercross. Anne's only surprise was that affairs should be in forwardness enough for Henrietta's wedding clothes to be talked of. She had imagined such difficulties of fortune to exist there as must prevent the marriage from being near at hand. But she learned from Charles that, very recently, since Mary's last letter to herself, Charles Hayter had been applied to by a friend to hold a living for a youth who could not possibly claim it under many years, and that, on the strength of his present income, with almost a certainty of something more permanent long before the term in question, the two families had consented to the young people's wishes, and that their marriage was likely to take place in a few months, quite as soon as Louisa's. And a very good living it was, Charles added, only five and twenty miles from Uppercross, and in a very fine country, fine part of Dorsetshire, in the centre of some of the best preserves in the kingdom, surrounded by three great proprietors, each more careful and jealous than the other, and to two of the three at least, Charles Hayter might get a special recommendation. Not that he will value it as he ought, he observed. Charles is too cool about sporting. That's the worst of him. I am extremely glad indeed, cried Anne, particularly glad that this should happen, and that of two sisters who both deserve equally well, and who have always been such good friends, the pleasant prospect of one should not be dimming those of the other, that they should be so equal in their prosperity and comfort. I hope your father and mother are quite happy with regard to both. Oh, yes. My father would be well pleased if the gentleman were richer, but he has no other fault to find. Money, you know, coming down with money, two daughters at once, it cannot be a very agreeable operation, and it straightens him as to many things. However, I do not mean to say that they have not a right to it. It is very fit they should have daughters' shares, and I am sure he has always been a very kind, liberal father to me. Mary does not above half like Henrietta's match, she never did, you know, but she does not do him justice, nor think enough about Winthrop. I cannot make her attend to the value of the property. It is a very fair match as times go. And I have liked Charles Hayter all my life, and I shall not leave off now. Such excellent parents as Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove, exclaimed Anne, should be happy in their children's marriages. They do everything to confer happiness, I am sure. What a blessing to young people to be in such hands! Your father and mother seem so totally free from all those ambitious feelings which have led to so much misconduct and misery, both in young and old. I hope you think Louisa perfectly recovered now. He answered rather hesitatingly. Yes, I believe I do, very much recovered, but she is altered. There is no running or jumping about, no laughing or dancing. It is quite different. If one happens only to shut the door a little hard, she starts and wriggles like a young dab-chick in the water, and Benwick sits at her elbow reading verses or whispering to her all day long. Anne could not help laughing. That cannot be much to your taste, I know, said she, but I do believe him to be an excellent young man. 
to be sure he is. Nobody doubts it. And I hope you do not think I am so illiberal as to want every man to have the same objects and pleasures as myself. I have a great value for Benwick, and when one can but get him to talk, he has plenty to say. His reading has done him no harm, for he has fought as well as read. He is a brave fellow. I got more acquainted with him last Monday than ever I did before. We had a famous set to at rat hunting all the morning in my father's great barns, and he played his part so well that I have liked him the better ever since. Here they were interrupted by the absolute necessity of Charles's following the others to admire mirrors in China. But Anne had heard enough to understand the present state of Uppercross and rejoice in its happiness. And though she sighed as she rejoiced, her sigh had none of the ill will of envy in it. She would certainly have risen to their blessings if she could, but she did not want to lessen theirs. The visit passed off altogether in high good humour. Mary was in excellent spirits, enjoying the gaiety and the change, and so well satisfied with the journey in her mother in law's carriage with four horses, and with her own complete independence of Camden Place, that she was exactly in a temper to admire everything as she ought, and enter most readily into all the superiorities of the house as they were detailed to her. She had no demands on her father or sister, and her consequence was just enough increased by their handsome drawing rooms. Elizabeth was, for a short time, suffering a good deal. She felt that Mrs. Musgrove and all her party ought to be asked to dine with them, but she could not bear to have the difference of style, the reduction of servants which a dinner must betray, witnessed by those who had always been so inferior to the Elliots of Kellynch. It was a struggle between propriety and vanity, but vanity got the better, and then Elizabeth was happy again. These were her internal persuasions. Old-fashioned notions, country hospitality. We do not profess to give dinners. Few people in Bath do. Lady Alicia never does. Did not even ask her own sister's family, though they were here a month. And I dare say it would be very inconvenient to Mrs. Musgrove. Put her quite out of her way. I am sure she would rather not come. She cannot feel easy with us. I will ask them all for an evening. That will do much better. That will be a novelty and a treat. They have not seen two such drawing-rooms before. They will be delighted to come to-morrow evening. It shall be a regular party, small but most elegant. And this satisfied Elizabeth, and when the invitation was given to the two present, and promised for the absent, Mary was as completely satisfied. She was particularly asked to meet Mr. Elliot, and be introduced to Lady de Rimple and Miss Carteret, who were, fortunately, already engaged to come, and she could not have received a more gratifying attention. Miss Elliot was to have the honour of calling on Mrs. Musgrove in the course of the morning, and Anne walked off with Charles and Mary to go and see her and Henrietta directly. Her plan of sitting with Lady Russell must give way for the present. They all three called him River Street for a couple of minutes, but Anne convinced herself that a day's delay of the intended communication could be of no consequence, and hastened forward to the White Hart to see again the friends and companions of the last autumn with an eagerness of good will which many associations contributed to form. They found Mrs. Musgrove and her daughter within, and by themselves, and Anne had the kindest welcome from each. Henrietta was exactly in that state of recently improved views, of fresh-formed happiness, which made her full of regard and interest for everybody she had ever liked before at all, and Mrs. Musgrove's real affection had been won by her usefulness when they were in distress. It was a heartiness and a warmth and a sincerity which Anne delighted in the more from the sad want of such blessings at home. She was entreated to give them as much of her time as possible, invited for every day and all day long, or rather claimed as part of the family, and in return she naturally fell into all her wonted ways of attention and assistance, 
and on Charles's leaving them together, was listening to Mrs. Musgrove's history of Louisa, and to Henrietta's of herself, giving opinions on business and recommendations to shops, with intervals of every help which Mary required, from altering her ribbon to settling her accounts, from finding her keys and assorting her trinkets, to trying to convince her that she was not ill-used by anybody, which Mary, well amused as she generally was, in her station at a window overlooking the entrance to the pump-room, could not but have her moments of imagining. A morning of thorough confusion was to be expected. A large party in an hotel ensured a quick, changing, unsettled scene. One five minutes brought a note, the next a parcel, and Anne had not been there half an hour, when their dining-room, spacious as it was, seemed more than half filled. A party of steady old friends were seated around Mrs. Musgrove, and Charles came back with Captains Harvel and Wentworth. The appearance of the latter could not be more than the surprise of the moment. It was impossible for her to have forgotten to feel that this arrival of their common friends must be soon bringing them together again. Their last meeting had been most important in opening his feelings. She had derived from it a delightful conviction, but she feared from his looks that the same unfortunate persuasion which had hastened him away from the concert-room still governed. He did not seem to want to be near enough for conversation. She tried to be calm, and leave things to take their course, and tried to dwell much on this argument of rational dependence. Surely, if there be constant attachment on each side, our hearts must understand each other ere long. We are not boy and girl to be captiously irritable, misled by every moment's inadvertence, and wantonly playing with our own happiness. And yet, a few minutes afterwards, she felt as if their being in company with each other, under the present circumstances, could only be exposing them to inadvertencies and misconstructions of the most mischievous kind. "'Anne,' cried Mary, still at her window, "'there is Mrs. Clay, I am sure, standing under the colonnade, and a gentleman with her. I saw them turn the corner from Bath Street just now. They seem deep in talk. Who is it? Come and tell me. Good heavens, I recollect. It is Mr. Elliot himself.' "'No,' cried Anne quickly. "'It cannot be Mr. Elliot, I assure you. He was to leave Bath at nine this morning, and does not come back till to-morrow.' As she spoke, she felt that Captain Wentworth was looking at her, the consciousness of which vexed and embarrassed her, and made her regret that she had said so much, simple as it was. Mary, resenting that she should be supposed not to know her own cousin, began talking very warmly about the family features, and protesting still more positively that it was Mr. Elliot, calling again upon Anne to come and look for herself. But Anne did not mean to stir, and tried to be cool and unconcerned. Her distress returned, however, on perceiving smiles and intelligent glances pass between two or three of the lady visitors, as if they believed themselves quite in the secret. It was evident that the report concerning her had spread, and a short pause succeeded, which seemed to ensure that it would now spread farther. "'Do come, Anne,' cried Mary. "'Come and look yourself. You will be too late if you do not make haste. They are parting. They are shaking hands. He is turning away. Not no, Mr. Elliot, indeed.' You seem to have forgot all about Lyme. To pacify Mary, and perhaps screen her own embarrassment, Anne did move quietly to the window. She was just in time to ascertain that it really was Mr. Elliot, which she had never believed, before he disappeared on one side, as Mrs. Clay walked quickly off on the other. And checking the surprise, which she could not but feel at such an appearance of friendly conference between two persons of totally opposite interest, she calmly said, "'Yes, it is Mr. Elliot, certainly.' He has changed his hour of going, I suppose, that is all. Or I may be mistaken. I might not attend. And walked back to her chair, recomposed, and with the comfortable hope of having acquitted herself well. The visitors took their leave. 
And Charles, having civilly seen them off, and then made a face at them and abused them for coming, began with, "'Well, mother, I have done something for you that you will like. I have been to the theatre and secured a box for tomorrow night. Aren't I a good boy? I know you love a play, and there is room for us all. It holds nine. I have engaged Captain Wentworth. Anne will not be sorry to join us, I am sure. We all like a play. Have not I done well, mother?' Mrs. Musgrove was good-humouredly beginning to express her perfect readiness for the play, if Henrietta and all the others liked it, when Mary eagerly interrupted her by exclaiming, "'Good heavens, Charles! How can you think of such a thing? Take a box for to-morrow night? Have you forgot that we are engaged to Camden Place to-morrow night, and that we are most particularly asked to meet Lady de Rimple and her daughter, and Mr. Elliot, and all the principal family connections on purpose to be introduced to them? How can you be so forgetful?' "'Foo-foo!' replied Charles. What's an evening party? Never worth remembering. Your father might have asked us to dinner, I think, if he had wanted to see us. You may do as you like, but I shall go to the play. Oh, Charles! I declare it will be too abominable if you do, when you promise to go. No, I did not promise. I only smirked and bowed, and said the word happy. There was no promise. But you must go, Charles. It would be unpardonable to fail. We were asked on purpose to be introduced. There was always such a great connection between the Dalrymples and ourselves. Nothing ever happened on either side that was not announced immediately. We are quite near relations, you know, and Mr. Elliot, too, whom you ought so particularly to be acquainted with. Every attention is due to Mr. Elliot. Consider my father's heir, the future representative of the family. Don't talk to me about heirs and representatives, cried Charles. I am not one of those who neglect the reigning power to bow to the rising sun. If I would not go for the sake of your father, I should think it scandalous to go for the sake of his heir. What is Mr. Elliot to me? The careless expression was life to Anne, who saw that Captain Wentworth was all attention, looking and listening with his whole soul, and that the last words brought his inquiring eyes from Charles to herself. Charles and Mary still talked on in the same style, he half serious and half jesting, maintaining the scheme for the play, and she, invariably serious, most warmly opposing it, and not omitting to make it known that, however determined to go to Camden Place herself, she should not think herself very well used if they went to the play without her. Mrs. Musgrove interposed. "'We had better put it off. Charles, you had much better go back and change the box for Tuesday. It would be a pity to be divided, and we should be losing Miss Anne, too, if there is a party at her father's. And I am sure neither Henrietta nor I should care at all for the play if Miss Anne could not be with us.' Anne felt truly obliged to her for such kindness, and quite as much so for the opportunity it gave her of decidedly saying— if it depended only on my inclination, ma'am, the party at home, excepting on Mary's account, would not be the smallest impediment. I have no pleasure in the sort of meeting, and should be too happy to change it for a play and with you. But it had better not be attempted, perhaps. She had spoken it, but she trembled when it was done, conscious that her words were listened to, and daring not even to try to observe their effect. It was soon generally agreed that Tuesday should be the day. Charles only reserving the advantage of still teasing his wife, by persisting that he would go to the play to-morrow if nobody else would. Captain Wentworth left his seat, and walked to the fireplace, probably for the sake of walking away from it soon afterwards, and taking a station, with less barefaced design, by Anne. "'You have not been long enough in Bath,' said he, "'to enjoy the evening parties of the place.' "'Oh, no. The usual character of them has nothing for me. I am no card-player.' You were not formerly, I know. You did not use to like cards. But time makes many changes. I am not yet so much changed, cried Anne, and stopped, fearing she hardly knew what misconstruction. 
After waiting a few moments, he said, and as if it were the result of immediate feeling, "'It is a period indeed. Eight years and a half is a period.' Whether he would have proceeded farther was left to Anne's imagination to ponder over in a calmer hour. For while still hearing the sounds he had uttered, she was startled to other subjects by Henrietta, eager to make use of the present leisure for getting out, and calling on her companions to lose no time, lest somebody else should come in. They were obliged to move. Anne talked of being perfectly ready, and tried to look it, but she felt that could Henrietta have known the regret and reluctance of her heart in quitting that chair, in preparing to quit the room, she would have found, in all her own sensations for her cousin, in the very security of his affection wherewith to pity her. Their preparations, however, were stopped short, alarming sounds were heard, other visitors approached, and the door was thrown open for Sir Walter and Miss Elliot, whose entrance seemed to give a general chill. Anne felt an instant oppression, and wherever she looked saw symptoms of the same. The comfort, the freedom, the gaiety of the room was over, hushed into cold composure, determined silence, or insipid talk, to meet the heartless elegance of her father and sister. How mortifying to feel that it was so! Her jealous eye was satisfied in one particular. Captain Wentworth was acknowledged again by each, by Elizabeth more graciously than before. She even addressed him once— and looked at him more than once. Elizabeth was, in fact, revolving a great measure. The sequel explained it. After the waste of a few minutes in saying the proper nothings, she began to give the invitation which was to comprise all the remaining dues of the Musgroves. "'Tomorrow evening, to meet a few friends, no formal party.' It was all said very gracefully, and the cards with which she had provided herself, the Miss Elliot at home, were laid on the table with a courteous, comprehensive smile to all and one smile and one card more decidedly for Captain Wentworth. The truth was that Elizabeth had been long enough in Bath to understand the importance of a man of such an air and appearance as his. The past was nothing. The present was that Captain Wentworth would move about well in her drawing-room. The card was pointedly given, and Sir Walter and Elizabeth arose and disappeared. The interruption had been short, though severe, and ease and animation returned to most of those they left as the door shut them out, but not to Anne. She could think only of the invitation she had with such astonishment witnessed, and of the manner in which it had been received, a manner of doubtful meaning, of surprise rather than gratification, of polite acknowledgment rather than acceptance. She knew him, she saw disdain in his eye, and could not venture to believe that he had determined to accept such an offering as an atonement for all the insolence of the past. Her spirits sank. He held the card in his hand after they were gone, as if deeply considering it. "'Only think of Elizabeth's including everybody,' whispered Mary very audibly. "'I do not wonder Captain Wentworth is delighted. You see he cannot put the card out of his hand.' Anne caught his eye, saw his cheeks glow, and his mouth form itself into a momentary expression of contempt, and turned away, that she might neither see nor hear more to vex her. The party separated. The gentlemen had their own pursuits, the ladies proceeded on their own business, and they met no more while Anne belonged to them. She was earnestly begged to return and dine, and give them all the rest of the day. But her spirits had been so long exerted that at present she felt unequal to more, and fit only for home, where she might be sure of being as silent as she chose. Promising to be with them the whole of the following morning, therefore, she closed the fatigues of the present by a toilsome walk to Camden Place, there to spend the evening chiefly in listening to the busy arrangements of Elizabeth and Mrs. Clay for the morrow's party, 
the frequent enumeration of the persons invited, and the continually improving detail of all the embellishments which were to make it the most completely elegant of its kind in Bath, while harassing herself with the never-ending question of whether Captain Wentworth would come or not. They were reckoning him as certain, but with her it was a gnawing solicitude never appeased for five minutes together. She generally thought he would come, because she generally thought he ought, but it was a case which she could not so shape into any positive act of duty or discretion as inevitably to defy the suggestions of very opposite feelings. She only roused herself from the broodings of this restless agitation to let Mrs. Clay know that she had been seen with Mr. Elliot three hours after his being supposed to be out of Bath, for having watched in vain for some intimation of the interview from the lady herself, she determined to mention it, and it seemed to her that there was guilt in Mrs. Clay's face as she listened. It was transient, cleared away in an instant, but Anne could imagine she read there the consciousness of having, by some complication of mutual trick, or some overbearing authority of his, been obliged to attend, perhaps for half an hour, to his lectures and restrictions on her designs on Sir Walter. She exclaimed, however, with a very tolerable imitation of nature, "'Oh, dear, very true. Only think, Miss Elliot, to my great surprise I met with Mr. Elliot in Bath Street. I was never more astonished. He turned back and walked with me to the pump-yard. He had been prevented setting off for Thornbury, but I really forget by what. For I was in a hurry and could not much attend, and I can only answer for his being determined not to be delayed in his return. He wanted to know how early he might be admitted to-morrow. He was full of to-morrow, and it is very evident that I have been full of it too, ever since I entered the house and learnt the extension of your plan and all that had happened, or my seeing him could never have gone so entirely out of my head. End of chapter 22 and if you believe Mrs. Clay, I have a bridge I can sell you. So, things are perking along, right? we got some good Captain Wentworth action. We've got some good Anne and Mr. Elliot. And Mary's back, and Mary's always a kick in the pants, so that's kind of fun. So, I'm going to move on to episode 171 and give you the end of the book. Have a great 15 seconds or so. Talk to you soon. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craft Lit. Visit Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, and Knit Circus Online Magazine, offering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the fun spring issue at www.knitcircus.com. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craft Lit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com. Craftlit can also be accessed by its own iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.